We continue with Judge Chutkin's December 1st Memorandum Opinion in United States v. Donald Trump. Picking up with Part 3, Section C. C. History Nothing in American history justifies the absolute immunity defendant seeks. As discussed above, there is no evidence that the Founders understood the Constitution to grant it, and since that time, the Supreme Court has never suggested that the policy considerations which compel civil immunity for certain governmental officials also place them beyond the reach of the criminal law. Moreover, the notion that former presidents cannot face federal criminal charges for acts they took in office is refuted by the presuppositions of our political history. Start with the executive branch itself. In the performance of assigned constitutional duties, each branch of the government must initially interpret the Constitution, and the interpretation of its powers by any branch is due great respect from the others. The executive's legal representatives, the Solicitor General and Office of Legal Counsel, have expressly and repeatedly concluded that a former president may be subject to criminal process after he leaves office or is removed therefrom through the impeachment process. Naturally, the special counsel's decision to bring this case also reflects that judgment, distinguishing the Department of Justice's position that former presidents retain civil immunity. Even on its own, the executive's long-standing and unwavering position on this issue weighs against this court unilaterally blocking a considered prosecution by conferring absolute immunity. Historical practice also indicates that a president's actions may later be criminally prosecuted. In the aftermath of Watergate, for example, President Ford granted former President Nixon full, free, and absolute pardon for all offenses against the United States, which he, Richard Nixon, has committed or may have committed or taken part in while in office. In so doing, President Ford specifically noted the serious allegations that, without a pardon, would hang like a sword over our former president's head until he could obtain a fair trial by jury. And former President Nixon formally accepted that full and absolute pardon for any charges which might be brought against me for actions taken during the time I was president of the United States, calling the pardon a compassionate act. Both Ford's pardon and Nixon's acceptance arose from the desire to prevent the former president's potential criminal prosecution, and both specifically refer to that possibility, without which the pardon would have been largely unnecessary. Defendant's view of his own immunity thus stands at odds with that of his predecessors in the Oval Office. Granting the immunity defendant seeks would also break with long-standing legal precedent that all government officials, even those immune from civil claims, may be held to criminal account. 
In Fitzgerald, for instance, the Supreme Court analogized former President Nixon's civil immunity to the similar protections provided to judges and prosecutors. Unlike most government officials who only receive qualified civil immunity, prosecutors and judges have absolute civil immunity due to the especially sensitive duties of their office and the public interest in their liberty to exercise their functions with independence and without fear of consequences. But notwithstanding their absolute civil immunity, prosecutors and judges are subject to criminal prosecutions as are other citizens. Thus, while in Fitzgerald the careful analogy to the common law, absolute immunity of judges and prosecutors, demonstrated history's support for the former president's civil immunity. Here, that same story compels the denial of a former president's criminal immunity. Against the weight of that history, defendant argues, in essence, that because no other former presidents have been criminally prosecuted— it would be unconstitutional to start now. But while a former president's prosecution is unprecedented, so too are the allegations that a president committed the crimes with which defendant is charged. The Supreme Court has never immunized presidents, much less former presidents, from judicial process merely because it was the first time that process had been necessary. The court will not do so here. In any event, defendant's reasoning turns the relevant historical analysis on its head. In Clinton, the president likewise argued that the relative dearth of cases in which sitting presidents had been defendants in civil litigation involving their actions prior to taking office meant that the Constitution afforded him temporary immunity for such claims. The court found instead that the dearth of similar cases meant that there was no basis of precedent for the immunity that President Clinton sought, and in fact showed that there was little risk of such litigation impeding the presidency going forward. In other words, a defendant cannot claim that history supports their immunity by pointing to the fact that their immunity has never been asserted. Here, as in Clinton, that absence of precedent negates rather than validates defendant's argument that history establishes his immunity from criminal prosecution. For these reasons, the court cannot conclude that our Constitution cloaks former presidents with absolute immunity for any federal crimes they committed while in office. Our nation's historic commitment to the rule of law is nowhere more profoundly manifest than in our view that the twofold aim of criminal justice is that guilt shall not escape or innocence suffer. Nothing in the Constitution's text or allocation of government powers requires exempting former presidents from that solemn process. And neither the people who adopted the Constitution nor those who have safeguarded it across generations have ever understood it to do so. Defendant's four-year service as commander-in-chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade the criminal accountability that governs his fellow citizens. No man in this country, not even the former president, is so high that he is above the law. Consistent with its duty not to decide questions of a constitutional nature unless absolutely necessary to a decision, 
the court emphasizes the limits of its holding here. It does not decide whether former presidents retain absolute criminal immunity from non-federal prosecutions, or whether sitting presidents are entitled to greater immunity than former ones. Similarly, the court expresses no opinion on the additional constitutional questions attendant to defendants' assertion that former presidents retain absolute criminal immunity for acts within the outer perimeter of the president's official responsibility. Even if the court were to accept that assertion, it could not grant defendant immunity here without resolving several separate and disputed constitutional questions of first impression including whether the president's duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed includes within its outer perimeter at least five different forms of indicted conduct, whether inquiring into the president's purpose for undertaking each form of that allegedly criminal conduct is constitutionally permissible in any immunity analysis and whether any presidential conduct intertwined with otherwise constitutionally immune actions also receives criminal immunity. Because it concludes that former presidents do not possess absolute federal criminal immunity for any acts committed while in office, however, the court need not reach those additional constitutional issues, and it expresses no opinion on them. Part 4. First Amendment In his constitutional motion, defendant first argues that the indictment should be dismissed because it criminalizes his speech and therefore violates the First Amendment. But it is well established that the First Amendment does not protect speech that is used as an instrument of a crime, and consequently the indictment which charges defendant with, among other things, making statements in furtherance of a crime, does not violate defendant's First Amendment rights. A. The First Amendment and Criminal Prosecutions The First Amendment provides, in relevant part, that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Generally, the First Amendment means that government has no power to restrict expression because of its message, its ideas, its subject matter, or its content. In restricting the government's power to control speech, the First Amendment embodies our profound national commitment to the free exchange of ideas. The right to freedom of speech is not absolute, however. It is fundamental First Amendment jurisprudence that prohibiting and punishing speech integral to criminal conduct does not raise any constitutional problem. Many long-established criminal laws permissibly criminalize speech that is intended to induce or commence illegal activities such as fraud, bribery, perjury, extortion, threats, incitement, solicitation, and blackmail. Prosecutions for conspiring, directing, and aiding and abetting do not run afoul of the Constitution when those offenses are carried out through speech. b. The indictment does not violate the First Amendment. The indictment alleges that defendant used specific statements as instruments of the criminal offenses with which he is charged. 
conspiring to fraudulently obstruct the federal function for collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 371, Count 1. Corruptly obstructing and conspiring to obstruct Congress's certification of the election results in violation of 18 U.S.C. Sections 1512C2 and K, Counts 2 and 3, and conspiring to deprive citizens of their constitutional right to have their votes counted in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 241, Count 4. That defendants' alleged criminal conduct involved speech does not render the indictment unconstitutional. The indictment notes that defendant had a right, like every American, to speak publicly about the election and even to claim falsely that there had been outcome-determinative fraud during the election and that he had won. And it enumerates defendant's specific statements only to support the allegations that defendant joined conspiracies and contempted to obstruct the election certification, such as the allegations that defendant knowingly made false claims about the election results and deceived state officials to subvert the election results. The indictment therefore properly alleges defendant's statements were made in furtherance of a criminal scheme. Defendant argues that the indictment violates the First Amendment for three primary reasons. 1. The government may not prohibit defendants' core political speech on matters of public concern. 2. First Amendment protection extends to statements advocating the government to act. And 3. Defendant reasonably believed that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. 1. Core Political Speech on Matters of Public Concern Defendant first claims that his statements disputing the outcome of the 2020 election is core political speech that addresses a matter of public concern. Even assuming that is true, core political speech addressing matters of public concern is not immunized from prosecution if it is used to further criminal activity. That is the case even though defendant was the president at the time. As the D.C. Circuit has recognized, an immunity for all presidential speech on matters of public concern is unsupported by precedent. In support of his argument, defendant first invokes various justices' opinions in United States v. Alvarez, 2012. There was no majority opinion in Alvarez. A majority of the justices agreed only that the Stolen Valor Act, which prohibits an individual from falsely representing that they have received any decoration or medal authorized by Congress for the armed forces of the United States, violated the First Amendment. One theme common to both the plurality and concurring opinions, however, was the concern that the Stolen Valor Act prohibited only false statements and only because of their falsity. Indeed, each opinion reiterated that laws implicating fraud or speech integral to criminal conduct are constitutional, because it confirmed that speech involved in the commission of a crime was not protected by the First Amendment. Alvarez did not undermine settled precedent allowing the prosecution of speech in furtherance of criminal activity. 
Second, defendant contends that attempts to prohibit or criminalize claims on political disputes constitute viewpoint discrimination. But defendant is not being prosecuted for his view on a political dispute. He is being prosecuted for acts constituting criminal conspiracy and obstruction of the electoral process. And any political motives defendant may have had in doing so do not insulate his conduct from prosecution. The indictment does not unconstitutionally discriminate against defendant based on viewpoint. Third, defendant argues that even if a higher level of scrutiny does not apply to the indictment, it nonetheless is invalid under any level of scrutiny because it is tailored to violate free speech rights. Here, however, there is no level of scrutiny that applies because speech in furtherance of criminal conduct does not receive any First Amendment protection. Moreover, defendant cites no support for his argument that the indictment is tailored to violate free speech rights, nor does he explain how the indictment is so tailored. Finally, defendant argues that the indictment violates the First Amendment because all the charged conduct constitutes First Amendment-protected speech. He contends that to qualify as speech in furtherance of criminal conduct, the speech in question must be integral to some criminal conduct that is not itself a form of First Amendment-protected speech or expression. But again, the indictment does not need to list other kinds of criminal conduct in addition to speech to comply with the First Amendment. The crimes defendant is charged with violating may be carried out through speech alone. 2. Statements Advocating Government Action Defendant next claims the First Amendment protects statements advocating the government to act. He first contends the Petition Clause of the First Amendment provides an absolute right to make statements encouraging the government to act in a public forum. The Petition Clause provides that Congress shall make no law abridging the right of the people to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The Clause protects individuals' ability to communicate their will through direct petitions to the legislature and government officials. In McDonald, however, the Supreme Court concluded that the Petition Clause did not immunize a person from a libel suit based on letters the individual had sent to the president. The court explained that the Petition Clause does not have special First Amendment status, so there is no sound basis for granting greater constitutional protection under the Petition Clause than other First Amendment expressions. Defendant's reliance on the clause and its interpretation in McDonald is therefore unavailing, as the Petition Clause does not prohibit prosecuting defendant's speech any more than the Speech Clause does. The Petition Clause does not insulate speech from prosecution merely because that speech also petitions the government. Defendant also invokes McDonald v. United States 2016, to argue that allowing this prosecution would risk criminalizing statements once thought to be false that turned out to be true, 
such as statements made early in the COVID-19 pandemic that masks do not stop the transmission of the virus. Not so. First, McDonnell did not involve the First Amendment, but rather the proper interpretation of official act under the federal bribery statute. And neither the indictment nor the federal statutes under which defendant is charged involve an official act. Second, defendant is not being prosecuted simply for making false statements, but rather for knowingly making false statements in furtherance of a criminal conspiracy and obstructing the electoral process. Consequently, there is no danger of a slippery slope in which inadvertent false statements alone are alleged to be the basis for criminal prosecution. In his reply brief, Defendant also raises overbreadth, arguing that under the government's interpretation, the underlying statutes charged in the indictment are unconstitutional because they criminalize a wide range of perfectly ordinary acts of public speech and petitioning the government. Assuming defendant's overbreadth challenge was properly raised for the first time in his reply brief, the statutes are not overbroad under the government's view. As an initial matter, defendants' actions are not entitled to First Amendment protection as perfectly ordinary acts of public speech and petitioning the government. Moreover, defendant fails to identify any protected acts or speech that the statutes might render impermissible under the government's interpretation. 3. Defendant's Statements on the 2020 Presidential Election Finally, defendant claims the First Amendment does not permit the government to prosecute him for his reasonable belief that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. He argues that the truth or falsity of his belief is not easily verifiable, and there is abundant public evidence providing a reasonable basis for his view. He contends that he is entitled to mistrust the word of the establishment-based government officials and draw his own inferences from the facts. At this stage, however, the court must take the allegations in the indictment as true, and the indictment alleges that defendant made statements that he knew were false. While defendant challenges that allegation in his motion and may do so at trial, his claims that his belief was reasonable does not implicate the First Amendment. If the government cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt at trial that defendant knowingly made false statements, he will not be convicted. That would not mean the indictment violated the First Amendment. We've come to the end of part three of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where this episode left off, and next episode will be the final episode in this opinion. Until next time, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us. <laughs>